welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. It crawls, it creeps, it eats you alive. I'm Ian Woodworth, I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we are talking about a monster category that I think doesn't get anywhere near as much love as it should. Today we're talking oozes. Yeah, oozes really are up there with some of the original D&D monsters. They get a lot of play in more of your video game type games because they're really easy to program and throw in. But they don't wind up on the table as frequently, which is kind of sad. Yeah, and because most of the oozes are fairly low CR and most games, at least as far as I can tell, tend to be in the level one to five range, they're ideal for that play style. And they're just criminally underutilized. They are. And the great thing with oozes, too, is strangely enough, they are very adaptable. And we'll talk about their form, and that works in many ways. But you can ramp these things up real easy, real fast, too. So it's not like they're just stuck for low level. I mean, they can be low level XP trash, and that's fine. Or they can be something truly terrifying. And they are also one of those monster types that really lends itself well to combinations with traps yes absolutely and again ian and i are a fan of traps they also lead themselves into kind of a build-up into a bigger monster they make great minions so if you're heading into the big bads lair that first area full of oozes is a great way to slowly wean out some of your character's abilities and kind of start making them spend resources to get through or even to block their path and make them take another route. Maybe the direct route is filled with oozes. And oozes can very quickly become something you don't want to mess with. And so plan B comes up very, very quickly. Yeah, I I like what you're saying about turning oozes into a resource sink. Yes. And whenever we start talking about specific oozes here in a little bit, we're going to talk about the ways that they will sap resources because that is what they are really good at doing. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's almost deceptive. It doesn't look like it should do that much to the party until you get three rounds into the fight with the ooze and you realize that you're not looking so hot. Yeah, suddenly they're not taking as many hits. Your best shots are just kind of, they're just soaking them. And I mean, that's what they do is they soak. I mean, physically, literally, materially, I mean, that's what they do. (laughs) All right, so let's go ahead and get started. Starting off with the big question, which is, what are oozes? To quote the 5th edition Monster Manual, Oozes are gelatinous creatures that rarely have a fixed shape. They are mostly subterranean, dwelling in caves and dungeons and feeding on refuse, carrion, or creatures unlucky enough to get in their way. That's fairly self-explanatory. Again, these are kind of the goopy things you're going to find in dungeons or in caves. And we'll talk about some natural things in the natural world that are very similar to these. So I don't want to jump the ship here. But again, they're going to be in dark, dank spaces generally. They're slimy. They're kind of gunky. They're going to be your kid's favorite thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So in general, oozes fall into four categories. Oozes, slimes, jellies, and puddings. And they all have their associated food groups. Yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And there's not really any real delineation between one or another. I mean, some of them are amorphous so that they can like ooze under doors and stuff. Some of them aren't like the gelatinous cube. That's one of the reasons why it's used in dungeons so often is because there is that built-in mechanic that allows 
the person who built the dungeon to have dropped it in and known that it wasn't going to go anywhere it wasn't supposed to because it can't ooze under the door. It has to have that 10 by 10 corridor to fit through. Otherwise, it's not going to fit. Right. I actually, while I was doing my research, found a great description of the gelatinous zoos. It's basically going through, eating up all the dead critters and carrion and debris. And they called it the dungeon Roomba because it just kind of moves and sucks everything up as it goes along. Yeah. I was like, that's a great term for it. Because oozes eat everything. Yes. Typically. If it's organic material, if it's metal, they'll eat it. Typically, the only things that it doesn't eat are dirt and bones. Those well, are the only well, things that... They really usually don't eat. I would say a lot of them would eat bones because that still falls under organic materials. But it is specifically mentioned in the gelatinous cubes stat block that it doesn't dissolve the bones. Okay. The gelatinous cube might not, but the others probably would. The black pudding probably, yeah. Yeah. The black pudding seems like the sort of thing that would just dissolve everything. Right. So oozes tend to be creatures without intelligence that act primarily on instinct. They don't have a central brain. So like amoebas or jellyfish, they operate on very basic stimuli, but they're still capable of performing the necessary functions to live, such as eating. They're still able to have an awareness of their immediate surroundings and be able to sustain themselves. So I like the amoebas. I like jellyfish because jellyfish, they tend to swarm and, you know, they've got the tentacles out so they can kind of go and they have some, you know, chemical sensors so they can kind of have an idea. Another really neat example of an ooze is what's called a plasmodium or a slime mold. And you find these generally in damp forests. And if you just hop on YouTube and look up slime mold, these things are absolutely fascinating. And they are exactly what they sound like. They are the slimy mold and they just kind of like pulse And as they pulse, they kind of push out one end of their body and they just kind of scooch along and they go through and these act like a very small dungeon ooze. I mean, they can be like a foot, two foot long and they just kind of creep across things and they generally eat microbial things or very, very small fungi, things like that. They're not harmful. They look really gross. They look like the slime that you could get in one of those like 25 cent candy things or the little bubble gum machines. They kind of look like that, except they move on their own and they're really, really neat. And they've done all kinds of research on how they work or how they move to food sources. They're actually strangely fascinating because they tend to be extremely efficient, which with these slime molds, this is also a really fun thing you can do. Again, we've talked about having like treats or snacks as your monster things on your table or map. If you've got a clean map or you don't mind gunking it up a little bit, things like that. If you need a gelatinous cube, a jello cube works perfect. Or if you have a slime mold, just melt down some gummies and kind of put them there, something kind of goopy. And then, you know, it can kind of move it around until someone kills it or eats something. Then whoever kills it gets to eat the damn thing, which is always kind of fun. <laughs> I enjoy eating the monsters. And then, you know, if it's one of the ones that has the ability to split, oh, yeah. you can cut it in half. Exactly. <laughs> Again, you can have fun with your table. It doesn't have to be, you know, $50 minis that you bought from Dwarven Forge or whatever it is. You can throw gummy bears or bugles or whatever you have up on there, and it can be a lot of fun. And it does make it more interactive for the players. So, I mean, if everything's clean and everyone's on the same page, you can just have a lot of fun with what you use for your monsters as placeholders. Yeah. So back to talking about oozes, like jellyfish and amoebas, they also typically don't have eyes. So they are technically blind, but they usually have either blind sight or tremor sense out to a certain range, usually about 60 feet. 
Yeah. And they're generally considered blind beyond that. So they can't detect anything beyond whatever their blind sight range is. Right. And again, for jellyfish or something like that, again, they have a bunch of different chemoreceptors. So they'd be able to tell the salinity of the ocean or basically what would be equivalent to smell for us mammals. So that kind of thing. Yeah, we don't have eyes, but they'd be able to tell if there was something in the air or moving the ground around them. Yeah. All right. So possibly the most iconic ooze from pop culture is the blob. Oh, yeah. I gotta love the blob. From the 1958 (laughs) Steve McQueen film The Blob, which was this gelatinous thing that came in on an asteroid from outer space and started eating everything. Fun trivia fact, The Blob was actually Steve McQueen's first leading role as an actor. And I did not know that. And another fun fact is Steve McQueen only made $3,000 on that film. Wow. Because he opted for the larger lump sum single payment instead of a smaller payment plus a percentage of royalties because he thought that it was going to flop. I mean, it was a weird film. And if someone was like, hey, we're just going to have this giant jelly from space and it's going to be a monster movie. And I'd be like, "Okay, yeah, I need a paycheck. Sure. Why not? You know, I need a check. I got to pay rent. I wouldn't think that's literally why he did it. That's literally (laughs) why he he went for the single payment was because his rent was due and he needed the money. (laughs) I I totally get that. I totally get that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he made three thousand dollars on the film that grossed four million. Oh, ouch. In 1958. Yeah, some days you just kick yourself. (laughs) (laughs) The things that you learn whenever you're researching for episodes. Another more recent example, one from my childhood, would be the Robin Williams film Flubber. It was apparently adapted from the Disney film The Absent-Minded Professor from 1961. Right. And this does kind of lead into, I mean, there are various things of the origin story of oozes, and there are some that have been rumored to be created by a wizard or an artificer trying to tinker around and an experiment went awry and then, oh, surprise, ooze. Um, yep. Which would be a fun thing to do if your party ever comes across like an alchemist's table or something in the middle of a dungeon and they start playing with stuff. I mean, yeah, you can easily <laughs> do the alchemist explosion and have a fireball or something like that alchemist fire pop out, but surprise, ooze is quite the surprise especially now that spelljammer is coming out and with spelljammer you're going to get the plasmoid race which is a playable ooze yeah so if you happen to have a campaign that's been running for a little bit and one of your players now suddenly wants to play as a plasmoid that would be a great way to do that would be an in-world way to have something happen to them to where they suddenly become a goop surprise oozed (laughs) (laughs) yeah and there are lots of examples uh, throughout the editions of different origins for different oozes. There's one from second edition that didn't make it into my notes called a mustard jelly, which was basically the result of a young wizard who tried to polymorph herself into an ooze and it went awry and she got stuck. Oh my. And that particular type of ooze has suddenly propagated and spread very far and wide. I could see that happening. Again, sometimes science goes wrong, boys and girls. I mean, this is why we use proper safety equipment. (laughs) Yeah, it was a variation on the ochre jelly, I think. But yet there is an ooze that is specifically wizard fucked around and found out. As you do. 
as you do. Now, I do have to say, please correct me if I'm wrong, because again, there's a lot to go through, particularly with oozes. As we said, there's a lot of various origin stories for different types. But of a creature that, you know, has, hey, we were messing around, we did an oops, and suddenly ooze. I didn't come across a beholder-created ooze, which seems really weird, because if anything was going to mess around and find out, it would have been a beholder. I think the beholders have enough sense not to play with oozes. I think they would make an ooze just for the lulls. Ah, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. You know, there is an ooze later on that we're going to talk about that has an assumed origin to it, but the creator in said suggested origin is never actually mentioned. It's suggested that it's a practitioner of dark arts, quote unquote. Okay. But the flavor of it, I mean, you could totally make that a beholder originated ooze. Yeah, you could. And I'll touch on that whenever we get to it. Okay. I don't want to get too far ahead. We don't want to jump too far ahead, yeah. Yeah. There's your teaser, so you got to listen to the rest of it (laughs) to see where we're going. (laughs) There's just so many different things that came up during research, and it's going to be hard to stay on topic today. It's really just going to be all over the place, much like the oozes are. There's not going to be much form to this. (laughs) (laughs) It's in the spirit of the monster. So because they are living piles of goop, they're usually resistant or immune to slashing damage. Correct. I don't know if you've ever tried to cut jello. It doesn't really do anything when you put a knife in it. Not a whole lot. Now, the other really wicked thing that was in a more third edition and second edition beyond, because they didn't have a form, they were immune to critical strikes as well. So you could not yes. crit one of these things. And that's just that hurt. That would be like you roll that 20 and like, yes, and it's like an ooze. It doesn't matter. Ha! And you're just like, fine, I wasted the 20. Great. (laughs) And in third edition, it was also immune to anything that targeted its mind. So it's immune to illusions. It's immune to psychic damage. It's immune to things that blind or deafen. It's immune to gaze attacks. It's immune to polymorph. Yep. Again, they're immune to being knocked prone or being tripped. And so these things are going to absolutely love your melee character. So you get that barbarian or that fighter that just wants to run up and smash things. Just throw an ooze out there and watch the party try to adapt. Can't trip attack this one. Nope. (laughs) I'm going to grapple it. Yeah, go for it. I double dug. There you go. Grapple it. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly the sound it makes. <laughs> I, I, I really hope that picked up. I really hope that picked up on the mic. <laughs> and I apologize if I end up making more disgusting mouth noises. Um, it's going to be a news episode. <laughs> it is going to be a news episode. I will try to keep it to a minimum. So in third edition, they were completely immune to both slashing and piercing damage. If you wanted to walk up to an ooze and attack it, you had to use bludgeoning damage. Or magic. Or magic. And a lot of them were immune or at least resistant to a lot of different types of magical damage as well. Correct. There are multiples that are immune to acid damage because a large portion of their damage is acid because they have their pseudopods, so they attack, but they are an acidic mass. That's how they break down and digest everything that they're going to eat is they are a puddle of gelatinous acid or acidic gelatin wherever you want to put the emphasis there. So if you're going to hit these with magic, generally you'd want fire, frost, or potentially necromancy, depending on the spell. But again, you've got a fairly low CR creature, generally half to two for the most part. Most of them, yeah. But you got all of these resistances, and then you're resistant to a lot of magic. These aren't 
quite like the Will-O-Wisps punching above their weight class, but they're not really easy to scoot off the table either. No. And there are some that are immune to fire. There's some that are immune to cold. There are some that are immune to lightning. The ochre jelly, that one's a really fun one. If you hit it with lightning, it splits. Yep. Now you got two. Not only do you not deal damage to it, you also now make two of them. Have fun. (laughs) Yeah, that splitting mechanic can be really nasty. And that was a lot of things in early video game coding. As they always said, it was a lazy or an easy out for video game creators. You could throw ooze that would quickly or easily split. The issue is that depending on how they coded that, that could bug out for some games real easily. And then pretty soon the entire game would get overwhelmed with just oozes because you couldn't deal enough damage fast enough to all of them to put them down. And so in early video game development, that was an issue they had to figure out how to limit that ability for them. Yeah. So while this is not included in, as far as I can tell, any of the stat blocks, I would also make them either resistant or immune to psychic damage because they don't have a nervous system. They don't have a brain. They don't have the thing that you target to make psychic damage happen because that's basically what the flavor of all of the psychic damage spells is, is you're targeting the mind of the creature. And if it's a mindless puddle of goo, there's nothing there for that psychic damage to latch onto. I would say yes to all but the ochre jellies and then the obelix. Um, We'll touch on the obelix later, but I believe traditionally the ochre jellies had an intel of two or three, so they did have some sentience. Those actually could move with an animal intellect. So those, I would make them resistant and not immune. The other ones would probably be immune. There is a variant of the gray ooze that is capable of psychic emanation. Those ones, I would say, you could target. Yeah. Those are the ones I would say. But The Ooblix themselves, they also do a psychic damage, and we'll touch on them and how they eat and attack and things like that, but they actually live off of psychic energy. Yeah, the Ooblix is a 5e original. Yeah, they're kind of fun. They're fun, but from a narrative standpoint, they're absolutely terrifying. Oh, yes. I kind of really want to throw a bunch of these somewhere because, yeah, you could do a lot with them. According to the Demonomicon of Igwilv, which is the in-game tome that deals a lot with interacting with demons and the abyss, written by Tasha, who is also known as Igwilv. According to that book, all oozes were created originally by Jublex, the demon prince of oozes and shapeless things. I mean, if you're going to be a prince of something, shapeless things is a nice realm to have. Yeah, Jublex shares their realm with Zugdmoy, who is the demon prince of basically mushrooms. Okay. Yeah, she's got like all the sort of different fungal things going gotcha. on. Now, again, too, if you're running like some evil druids and you had a circle of spores grow, oozes kicking around this thing would make a lot of sense. And that would actually mm-hmm. be a really fun campaign point, you know, to run some things against too. Again, I've got a soft spot for the molds and fungi. So yeah, I, I would have a lot of fun with that. Apparently this particular point is brought out a lot in chapter six of the Out of the Abyss module, which I had to go and look up and read through a little bit because there is a character in here. He's a Swerf Neblin and he's called the Pudding King. <laughs> I freaking love that. I want to be known as the Pudding King. That's just, <laughs> I, I want the weird corner shop on the market, you know, in the mini mall. Pudding King, just have like the little fake crown. That's why I just sell pudding all day. That's what I would do. <laughs> Bread pudding, chocolate pudding, pistachio pudding. I am Pudding King. Banana pudding. <laughs> 
Yes. Ooh, Banana pudding great. is the king of puddings. <laughs> I have planted my flag. Okay. Banana pudding is the king of puddings. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, no, the pudding king is just the best title ever. I love it. You can have your pumpkin king. I am the pudding king. <laughs> <laughs> and that chapter of the module also introduces Glabagool. Glabagool is a nonviolent gelatinous cube who seems to have been granted sentience by Jiblex showing up in the Underdark. Jiblex shows up and this gelatinous cube gains sentience. And he doesn't want to fight. He's just really curious about everything. Yeah. He doesn't mean to eat you. He's just checking stuff out. He's kind of poking around. And oops, I mean, it might happen. Because he's he's telepathic now, so he can actually talk to you. Oh, great. So yeah, he's just scoping things. I like it. Dude, this would make a great pet. And you can get him to come along with you. I keep using him. I don't think gelatinous cubes have genders. I should be using they. Yeah. So you can get them to come along with you. Yeah. Or if you would prefer that they didn't come along with you, they have this magical mace that's just floating around in their innards that you can negotiate to get this magical mace from them and they'll just sort of splorp it out. Okay. Maybe (laughs) trade them like so many pounds of meat for their mace. I'm sure that there's something in there that they want in the module that you can do, but I didn't read it that closely. No, I like it. Like I said, I I would totally keep Glabagool as a little pet and just like kind of like breadcrumb them along with me. Yeah. So most of the oozes, except for the gelatinous cube, in 5e have the amorphous feature that allows them to squeeze through cracks as small as one inch. Now, this is one of the things that makes oozes really frightening and really terrifying because you can have them on the back end of a wall or even, you know, part of the trap. Like I kind of, when I was reading about this, I was thinking that maybe you had oozes that have infested or grown like an old ruin. And instead of a bunch of like dart traps that you have going where you didn't have darts pop up out of the ground or like shoot darts at you, as you walk past and you trigger these traps, the slots for the arrows or the spikes would open up. But since they've already been triggered decades or centuries ago, there's no arrows, but there's oozes there. And now those oozes can kind of slurp out through those tiny little holes and start taking attacks of opportunity as your party's trying to go through this tunnel way or narrow path. Oh yeah, you're walking down the hall and all of a sudden a pseudopod slashes out at you. Yeah, just like slaps you right yeah. in the face. Like a wet yeah. fish. You'll... <laughs> <laughs> not talking about wet mouth noises, but there are a great many oozes who are ambush predators, basically. And so they will get on the wall or on the ceiling, and whenever you walk by, they'll drop on you. Yeah. That is a very nasty but very common ooze tactic. Ooze from above. Yeah. And also, oozes are... They used to be immune to polymorph, which would be the immutable form feature in 5e. I think that they left it off of them because polymorph is such a high-level spell. Yeah. It's what? Is it a fourth level spell or third level spell? It might be. I think it's a third level. I I haven't checked. I don't use polymorph myself too often just because I find it unreliable. I tend to run with more murder hobo-ish parties. And by the time I polymorph something to keep it safe, somebody else wants to slap it. And then they waste a spell. (laughs) And I get really upset about that. So, yeah, I just like Or, Or they just resist it in the first place. Right. But again, this kind of makes them not quite so hard to battle with because they are technically a lower CR monster. So again, if they can shrug off a polymorph spell, that's one of your upper spell slots. But all oozes are also immune to the blinded, charmed, deafened, exhausted, frightened, and prone conditions. Right. And we discussed that 
previously. So all of these magic conditions that are immune to, they're immune to a lot of physical conditions, which again, when it comes to actually fighting one of these things on the table, they don't slide off the table too terribly easy. They've got some stick to them. I think it's funny that they're not immune to being grappled. You can grapple the hell out of them. Yeah, it's <laughs> they'll just grapple you right back. That's the problem. I mean, welcome to my parlor, said the spider to the fly. <laughs> right. Grapple me all you want, because yeah, I mean, the question is, is could you actually restrain it? And I don't think you'd be able to restrain the... They're ears. not immune to being restrained. That makes it weird. Now that I would question. Yeah. Unless because, again... Because you can use something like Maximilian's Earthen Grasp. Right. That could work or a web would. And I think that happened early on in campaign two of Critical Role, where Caleb actually grappled a gelatinous cube with his earthen grasp. I'm pretty sure that happened. A gelatinous cube would make more sense because they have a definite shape than an ooze. Uh, again, and if you were using a spell to restrain it versus, you know, using a strangle or something like the Yon T have where they can kind of constrict, I personally would give a ooze advantage on rolling against a restrained ability, but that would be me as a DM call. I mean, personally, because they are amorphous, because they can slip through anything that is at least one inch wide. Right. I would just have them splorp out on right. their turn. Like, yeah, you grappled them. And then they just sort of go on their merry way. Now, the big DM question, though, is playing this as the DM, your player's going to run up and try to grapple this ooze. Again, the ooze itself is not intelligent. It's running off of pure biological instinct. Basically, it's a hot dog crawling into its mouth. It's not really (laughs) going to want to run away or resist a grapple unless while you're grappling this thing you've done you know, more than three quarters damage to it. If you get it down to a certain point, it might reflexively try to withdraw to save itself. Otherwise, it's just going to eat the grappler. And a lot of oozes do have an engulf ability. Right. And by trying to grapple this ooze, you are essentially, mechanically, willingly failing (laughs) your dexterity saving through to avoid being engulfed. Yes, you're basically pouring salt on yourself and screaming, eat me! (laughs) You're yeeting yourself into the mouth of the monster. (laughs) Absolutely. It does not bode well for your longevity. Yes, this is strongly advised against. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about oozes through the additions before we get into a breakdown of the different oozes that we've got available. So oozes have been in D&D since the very beginning. The original list of oozes, which has remained the basic list of ooze monsters for every single edition, was the black pudding, the gray ooze, the gelatinous cube, and the ochre jelly. Okay. In older editions, the green slime was also included in that list. Yes. As of fifth edition, the green slime is no longer considered a creature. It is now considered a dungeon hazard. Okay. Because it doesn't have an attack roll. It doesn't have a movement speed. It doesn't have hit points. So even in D&D, we get that weird line between is it alive or is it not? Eh? Okay, we'll give it this one. And just because it's alive, does that mean it's a monster? Right. This is true. A tree is alive. But it's not going to eat you. But it's not a monster. Fair enough. Yeah. Until you cast Awaken on it and it becomes an awakened tree and then it turns around and Raffle stomps you. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was one additional monster called the Slithering Tracker that was added in a supplement a little bit later on in OD&D. Now, the Slithering Tracker is a little bit terrifying. I kind of love that one, too. The Slithering Tracker is the one that I'm saying could be 
made by beholders. Okay, that's fair. When I was reading, yeah, Dark Practitioners, I was saying it was possibly something produced by liches as well, which would also fit. There are a lot of possibilities for this one. Yes, there are a ton of possibilities for that one. So the list was later expanded to include creatures like the Olive Slime, the Crystal Ooze, the Deadly Puddings, which are the Dun, Brown, and White, the Stun Jelly, the Mustard Jelly, the Bone Ooze, my personal favorite, (laughs) the Flesh Jelly, the Reason Stealer, and the Teratomorph. The Teratomorph is quickly climbing to one of my favorites. Yeah, it's the (laughs) last one on our breakdown list. There was one that I forgot about. Actually, there's a couple of them from 3rd Edition Fiend Folio called Aquatic Oozes. One of them is called Blood Bloaters. It is actually a swarm of diminutive oozes. Nice. They kind of look like a sunny side up egg. I can see that. Except that the white is this sort of clear viscous goop and where the yolk is is this weird little red center okay and they act like leeches they float in the water and if something enters the water that they can feed on they just sort of swarm over to it and as they slither up over it they deal one point of damage and sap one point of strength oh my (laughs) because third edition still did attributes right sat reduction Yeah, stat reduction. So what I would do personally in 5th edition is it deals that one point of damage and it reduces your max hit points. Yeah, I could see that. That would be really good. That would be the way I would do that. And I would run these kind of like a small swarm of jellyfish, you know, just kind of float and then just have them kind of all sucker on. If you've ever played the original Metroid or even Super Metroid, you know how they just would kind of come over and then latch on and start draining your hit points. That would Mm -hmm. actually work really well. Yeah. And additionally, you also have to make fort save in third edition. So it'd be a con save now. Really simple. DC 10. And if you fail that, you were nauseated. for Oh, nice. So that would be basically you'd be poisoned until the end of your next turn. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, if you're going to give someone the poison effect in the water, that would be really rough. (laughs) Yeah. So have disadvantage on attack rolls and ability checks while you're getting leached by these wee bitty little oozes. The swarm of little bitty oozes. That's rather terrifying. I like them. Yeah, they're all about eight inches in diameter. Okay. And then one that I have used before that I really like is called a flotsam ooze. They are this transparent mass of sticky goop that they form over debris that gathers in the water and break it down. Okay. And so because they don't digest things like gold or glass it would be very common for you to be walking along the beach or walking along the riverbank and you see this pack of debris tucked away you know over under a tree and you just see four or five potions just bobbing in the water and you're like okay i'll just go over there and get them and you go and you grab it and then it's got you see that sounds a bit like the crystal oozes were and these were supposed to you know basically right. hide in the water and had the same okay i'm not gonna get out too hard they had the same refractive index as the water so you couldn't really tell where the ooze was and the water was so it just kind of blobbed in there again i'm not gonna go too far into refractive index or how that worked but yeah <laughs> right yeah but this one is specifically designed to be Something that is encountered whenever you go picking through debris. 
Okay, yeah, I could see these kind of like in a tide pool, perhaps, you know, especially like if there was an old shipwreck. And so you're like, it's low tide, you're walking past the water's kind of frothy. And like you said, there's a couple like potions floating, or maybe you go down and you see, hey, there's a small pile of gold that maybe someone was trying to stash and you just stumbled upon it. That would actually be a really good thing. No, I like it. And the gimmick is that it's adhesive. So once it gets on you, the only way you get it off of you is you have to make a DC 16 strength check or kill it. These are sounding like a weird cross between an ooze and a mimic. Yeah. Music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently you can weaken the bond with soap or lye. So you can use a chemical agent to sort of help you get the goop off. Oh, I forget. There's basically, I remember there's the wondrous items and there's the 5e edition that's basically like the super glue for everything. Sovereign glue? Yeah, but then there's also the dissolving agent to get it off. Um, yeah. With um, the name of it. You would want some of that. Yeah, that would definitely do it. Okay, anyway, aside, finished. <laughs> that was one of those things where I remembered about it as we started recording. And so I needed to no, get to that. That was fun. And then in fifth edition, you're back to the basic four black pudding, gelatinous cube, gray ooze, ochre jelly. Green slime still exists. It's in the DMG on page 105 under a dungeon hazards instead of being a creature because it lacks the things that make a creature Monstrous. function like a creature with a stat block. Right. If it doesn't move and it doesn't have an attack and it doesn't have hit points, then it's not really a creature. At right. that point, you know, pool of acid's not a creature, but it's still going to eat your character. Yeah, that lava pool is going to do the same thing. Um, and then fifth edition two, we do have the plasmoids coming up in Spelljammer and the Oblix as well. Yes. So again, third edition, they kind of went a little ooze happy. And I get it because they are fun. And so we're back down to a manageable number. Well, I mean, you had so many books of creatures in third edition. Right. There were five monster manuals. Yeah. You could have a small library, just third edition. I do have a small library, just third edition. (laughs) Anyway, so let's get to a basic breakdown of some of these oozes. So starting off with the lowest CR of the group is the Gray Ooze. The Gray Ooze is resistant to acid, cold, and fire. And its basic ability is corrode metal. So if you hit it with a non-magical metal weapon, or if it hits you with its pseudopod and you're wearing non-magical metal armor, you get a minus one penalty to damage rolls with the weapon or to your AC with the armor. Right. Whenever the armor's bonus to AC drops to 10 plus dex, the armor is destroyed. Whenever the penalty to the damage on the weapon hits minus five, the weapon is destroyed. Now, this is something I like, and this is something that has fallen largely out of favor in a lot of table games that I kind of miss, is the breakdown of weapons and armor. There are a lot of times when you're running through a dungeon, and yeah, you can find leather armor, you can find a coat of chainmail or whatever, and your player's are like, well, I've already got this, it's not an improvement, yeah, I'll just throw it in the bag and sell it later. You could really run these oozes and break down especially in your earlier levels, one to six, one to eight, when you don't have magical items yet and you can break down their mundane armor and then maybe make them use some of those resources and treasures they've found within the dungeon, either saving up to buy better armor to replace their armor or just using what they found. Maybe the paladin loses his plate and has to switch to leather armor for a little while. 
I think this is a good way to add resource management into the campaign and then also would make a good reason to find maybe that plus one magical armor in there. Maybe that armor survived these oozes because they can't eat the magical armor. And that would be a good reason why this would be something found in the dungeon. And in Xanathar's, they give a whole bunch of common magic items. So things like the armor of gleaming, where the magic on it is that it doesn't get dirty. Yeah, that would be sufficient to keep this ooze from eating it. Exactly. That could be something, you know, you're walking through the dungeon and you find this skeleton that's wearing this absolutely pristine suit of plate mail. Damn, it's pretty. (laughs) And you pick it up. And it magically shifts its size to fit you. And voila, you now have magical armor. It doesn't give you any bonus. The magic on it is purely cosmetic, but it's still magic armor. Right. And like I said, it'll survive attacks from an ooze. And then this way, too, you can kind of work on your game's economy. And again, that's something that's also neglected in a lot of campaigns is how the economy exactly works. So you don't get this weird power creep with each time you go to a dungeon you have to find something bigger and better and more magical you can just find something that helps you survive the dungeon absolutely yeah so they also have false appearance so they look like damp stone or an oily puddle when they aren't in motion this really makes it very easy to use them in ambush situations absolutely yes so they're going to be found in caves They're going to be found in damp dungeon sort of locations. So anything that's stone and underground and kind of wet, they're going to be in there. Yeah, this is basically like anything in your dank basement you're going to find. You know, again, it's that humid, mucky, wet, drippy, kind of like a waterfall where the water's just kind of everywhere, that kind of thing. And it also has a psychic variant. I mentioned that a little bit earlier that has a recharge ability on a 5-6 that it can deal 3d6 psychic damage to a creature within 60 feet, half on a successful save. I would have a hard time figuring out how to actually well, I know it's a book thing to figure out like what kind of exact psychic damage the thing's going to do to you, how it's going to get in your head. Maybe it just has a weird presence about it or something like that. I would have a hard time as a DM figuring that out, wrapping my head around that personally. Maybe it's just like an eldritch aberration type thing that's just so weird that it squicks you out. Generally speaking, it's because it has lived that long. Okay. That's why it is capable of doing it. There was a sidebar that explained it. A great ooze that lives a long time can evolve to become more intelligent and develop limited psionic ability. Such occurrences are more common in gray oozes that live near psionic creatures such as Mind Flayers, suggesting that oozes can sense and mimic psionic abilities. I could see it if they live near Mind Flayers because you just start adapting. To, yeah, okay. That would make more sense. And they also happen to have an intelligence of six if they oh. are psychic. Okay. So again, they're about as smart as like a chimp or an ape, more smart than a really well-trained dog. They're probably like a step or two below what we'd consider human intelligence. Probably like something along the lines of a crow or a raccoon, maybe. Yeah, I could see that. An octopus. Again, speaking Uh, of mind flayers, that would probably... Octopus would probably be a little bit more, I I would say. We're probably vastly underestimating octopi at this point, but octopodia? Octopodes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I for one welcome our new cephalopod overlords. I think that ravens, I think that would be an apt equivalent. Yeah. Okay. Something that is smart enough to be able to mimic the things it sees and use tools to mimic the actions that it sees. Yeah, I could see that. 
So next up is the ochre jelly. It is resistant to acid and immune to lightning and slashing. If you hit it with something that it's immune to, it can split as a reaction. It cannot split if it has fewer than 10 hit points. Right. And this also depends on the size of the creature. So if it's small already, um, I don't think it can split smaller than small. Well, they start as medium. Yeah. Uh, I, no, they, they start, start as large. As, they start as large. large. So you can split them twice. You can split from large to two medium and two medium to four small. I don't think you can go quite far as Dan is diminutive. You can do tiny. Oh, okay. Then, yeah. Tiny's the next one down. Okay. I mean... They've only got 45 hit points. Right. So. right. so that goes from 45 to 22 to 11. So yeah, they wouldn't be able to go because you can't. Split yeah, you wouldn't be able to go past small because you don't have enough hit points to do that. Unless you beefed these up and, you know, you can stat level these up a bit too. Another really tricky thing I've seen suggested to do with oozes, and this would probably be something more intelligent kind of along the gray ooze, is if you have multiple oozes where they kind of group together as one. So as they get attacked, then the individual's pop off so they look like one larger ooze but it's actually three four five six fully adult oozes and as a tactic they go and then they can break off to surround or encompass a party okay that could work yeah that would be more of a hive mind type thing but yeah and that would be yeah a way you could work that would definitely be something that something like an oblex yeah like a colony of oblex spawn yeah would do because they're all small enough and low enough and damage output individually that that could work right and with their amorphous if they were in one kind of blob they would act as a single hull so it would have one attack until they started breaking off and then you'd have smaller so it wouldn't be a true split but it would be a swarm tactic of some sort hit it with a thunder wave and all of them go separate directions yeah oh oh that would be so bad even if you hit it with like a bludgeoning weapon so you got your giant maul or your giant warhammer you're doing the whole gallagher thing and so it splatters everywhere and you can build this up as your dm you know you sit there you take a full swing and you hit a dead sitter and this ooze just splatters everywhere you cover five square feet with just slimy ooze particles everywhere and then each piece just kind of blops up in their own blob and now you're surrounded by ooze everybody make a dexterity saving throw yeah <laughs> the trouble if has you, begun. if you fail now you have an ooze attached to your face yep i like it <laughs> <laughs> so ochre jellies also have spider climb. Other than that, they're pretty basic. Their pseudopod deals bludgeoning plus acid damage, has no additional effects. So all they have is their ability to split and spider climb. Right. That's now, all they really need. This is all they need. And again, these are going to be instinctual. So they are going to be fairly relentless once they have kind of locked on for lack of a better term or start tracking a creature they are going to follow whatever they are pursuing until it is out of range of its sensory perception which as we discussed earlier is going to be about 60 feet yeah and because a spider climb you can't climb up a tree or climb up you know a cliff to get away from it it's going to follow you if you Mm -hmm. dive through the next door it's going to slurp in through the keyhole or under the door you can't dive into the lake it knows where you're at so it's just going to slowly pursue you until you escape it or it gets you it follows yes (laughs) (laughs) so this one is going to be a surprise attack sort of booze. This is one that's going to be clinging to the ceiling and it's going to drop on the party whenever they walk under it. Yeah. Next up is the gelatinous cube. The 
quintessential ooze of D&D. Yeah, this is the poster child ooze. This is the poster child ooze. It is also a CR2. It is the only 5e ooze not to be amorphous. And that does fit with older lore. The abilities that it used to have actually fit very closely with the blob from the movie. It's like they were inspired or something. I know, right? (laughs) So the gelatinous cube used to be immune to lightning damage because there is a scene in the blob where they lure the blob into high voltage power lines and it crashes through them and they don't do anything to it. Right. But it also used to have its movement speed if it took cold damage, which Going back to the movie, the way they found that they could beat it was they used CO2 fire extinguishers to freeze the blob. And then once the blob was frozen, they picked it up in a net with a helicopter and they flew it to the Arctic and they dropped it in the Arctic. It's a good way to do it. Because they couldn't kill it, so they just had to dispose of it. Right, as you do. And so it doesn't have those anymore. It doesn't actually have any damage resistances or immunities in fifth edition that's a bit of an oversight in my opinion i mean they're the most commonly used ooze they have a much larger hit point pool right so it makes a little more sense if you're intending to have them show up more often right to do that especially since it has engulf Right. Which basically means that as part of its movement, it can just sort of splorp over top of you and you have to make a deck save to get out of its way. And if you don't, you're inside of it and you're now having to hold your breath and try and cut your way out. Right. Now, traditionally, this was it could be either four medium or small creatures or one large creature. And I kind of go back and forth on this one because you are finding more large playable characters and playable races. And so if you had a party of all large characters, this would be definitely less of a party wipe than, you know, if you had a a party of halflings. Right. But I mean, you could also make it larger and fit. Again, you could play with this by DM Fiat, but traditionally there was a limit to how much it could slurp up. Well, there is an example in lore I think it was in Undermountain where they were experimenting on gelatinous cubes to see if they could make them bigger. And they were mixing their ooze research with research on the Dwergar's natural ability to enlarge. Oh my. And they managed to get a gelatinous cube that was 30 feet square to a side. See, this is exactly, they apparently never watched Jurassic Park. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. (laughs) So in addition to just being able to move over top of creatures, it is also transparent. And you have to make a DC 15 perception check to notice it. And if you don't notice it and you enter its space without seeing it, you are surprised on that first round of combat whenever it decides that it's going to eat you. Okay. And being surprised probably means you're getting slurped. Yeah. And not in a fun way. (laughs) And also willingly entering a space occupied by the gelatinous cube means that you automatically fail your deck save. Right. And a DC 15 perception check, I have failed plenty of those. We'll just put it that way. It's not a guaranteed check. I mean, no, that it is... isn't, especially in a dark or dimly lit dungeon. Yeah. So you're going to be making that perception check a disadvantage. Yep. That is definitely failable. <laughs> oh, yeah. So a favorite trap for the gelatinous cubes, because they work very well for traps, is to have a pit trap that is 10 feet by 10 feet square and like 20 feet or 30 feet deep with visible treasure at the bottom. And, you know, they see it down there. They're like, oh, we're going to go get it. 
And so they tie a rope around the rogue's waist and they lower the rogue down the hole and the rogue gets lowered down into the gelatinous cube at the bottom. He got where you be careful what you wish for. Sometimes you get what you want. (laughs) And because he's inside the gelatinous cube, he can't yell up at his buddies to pull him up. Right. You're sitting there trying to pull on the rope. Yeah, you know, you have to try and swim out to the edge and pull yourself through (laughs) the membrane on the top of the gelatinous cube, all while being dissolved by acid. I like it. There's another one. There's a version of that where that was the trap at the end of the hallway, but the hallway was 10 feet by 10 feet square and a gelatinous cube dropped at one end of the hallway and started chasing the party down the hallway towards the pit trap. Oh, nice. That's fairly devious. I like that one. Something along those lines I've seen as a DM to use gelatinous cubes is another fun thing. Again, while these run primarily off of instinct, if you do enough damage to them, they will eventually try to flee. So if part of your party has been engulfed by this cube and then later escapes to through to the other side, and then the rest of the party deals enough damage and it switches direction to flee, then it's going to go back and pick up whatever tried to escape out the back because it doesn't care. It's all just a direction. Absolutely, yeah. So the last one, the heavy hitter of the basic oozes is the black pudding. Yes. Originally a deadly black pudding. The black pudding is immune to acid, cold, lightning, and slashing damage. It's basically a combination of the gray ooze and the ochre jelly. And because of this, this is coming in at a CR4. So again, this is our heaviest hitter. Yeah. So it combines the corrode metal of the gray ooze and the split and spider climb of the ochre jelly. I thought that they had engulf as well it wouldn't take too much to just give it engulf no it really wouldn't especially since the art in the monster manual shows a black pudding engulfing exactly i've heard this described as like the venom symbiote where just kind of like and and kind of slurp up and around and over and again with that split if you start throwing black puddings on a table with all of the resistance they have with as deadly as they can be, as much as they can break down armor. These can end a party very, very quickly. Especially since so many people take swords as their weapons, swords and daggers. They don't diversify their damage types. And so you walk in with your great sword. You're like, Oh, my great sword is optimized. It's a better damage dealing weapon than them all. It's a plus, it's a, you know, what a 1d12 it's a 2d6 versus a 1d12 yeah okay you know you get a better damage output with a 2d6 a more reliable damage output is less swingy than a 1d12 that's why people like great swords but yeah but my mall isn't going to make this black pudding split exactly it's also not resistant to bludgeoning. You do that, and again, these are going to split. These are going to eat your armor if it's not magical. It's going to eat your weapon if it's not magical. As a DM, if this got on any party, I even the non-magical things like maybe your backpacks, your belts, your various bags or sundry, you know, potions or things that you're using to haul things, all of your party's rope, you know, again, you can use these to drain resources very, very quickly. I think it was Dragon Talk. I was watching a podcast on some of these earlier, and they were talking about, like, if you've got a party that's fairly newish and they're just going full murder hobo, these black puddings are a really good way to break that habit because there comes a point where if they start splitting, 
you can't outpace their damage. They will take out the party. And right. so these are because the things. they don't lose damage output. Right. They just gain action economy. Right. And so this becomes, you don't go past this line. Retreat's a really good option, boys and girls. And again, <laughs> a lot of parties, they don't think running away is a perfectly valid strategy. Cowardice is good. Cowardice keeps you alive so you can fight another day. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so let's talk a minute about green slime. Okay. So it was once an incredibly deadly creature, even though it did no damage. Because once it got on you, you had 1d4 rounds to remove it. And if you didn't remove it, you died and your body turned into more green slime. Yep. And again, this is why this became more of a hazard than a monster. Because again, there is no attack. It's just there and you fix the problem or you don't. So the way that you could get it off, you could scrape it off. You could remove the body part that it was on. Well, I mean, we had that hand of Vecna carrying around. It gives us an excuse now. (laughs) Extreme cold or fire or a cure disease spell. All of those would get rid of it. Okay. But at incredibly low levels, you're almost as likely to kill the victim trying to get rid of the green slime as you are to just leave it alone and let the green slime kill the victim. Right. So this kind of reminds me, in my Western Civ class, they were talking about during the Middle Ages, the Muslim people and the Arabs had collected a a lot of the Greek texts and saved and preserved a lot of the Greek knowledge where those in Europe kind of turned their back to it before the Renaissance. And there was a treatise written by an Arabic medic at the time who was visiting Europe. And they talked about a knight that wound up with a boil or an infection on his leg. And the author was talking about how With Arabic medicine, they would have used a poultice of herbs and things to treat the infection. But where they were, they thought the easiest thing was was just to amputate the leg with a rather dull axe and talked about how the marrow spilt from the bone afterwards. And so therefore, unsurprisingly, the knight died from further infection very soon after this very shoddy amputation. So the cure was quite literally worse than the disease in this case. It kind of, with these green slimes, kind of goes along those same ways that uh, the way to cure it was so vastly severe that, yeah, you could very easily kill your party player. Yeah, John from Tale of the Manticore actually had a rather nasty encounter with some green slime early on in season one. Right. Yeah, and that was right as the characters were about to hit second level. So they really had nothing to fight this off. They basically yeah, their resources were limited. What they ended up having to do is use the torch that they were carrying and hope that the fire damage from the torch didn't kill them as they were trying to burn it off. Gotcha. Now, as a DM, I would like maybe do a stop, drop, and roll. If there was sand, maybe try to abrade it off, you know, that kind of thing. Just kind of different things to scrape if you could see. I would definitely make people roll a medicine and perception check both and probably kick those up a bit, maybe like a 12 or a 15 on both of those to make sure you got everything off. Right. So in fifth edition, it still behaves kind of like this, but it doesn't have any stats. So it has blindsight out to 30 feet. And it will drop on you from the ceiling. If you are aware of it, you get a DC 10 deck save to avoid it. If you don't notice it, it's an automatic hit. Ooh. It deals 1d10 acid damage per round to flesh, 2d10 acid damage per round to wood metal. Okay. And it remains attached until scraped off or destroyed, just like it has been. And it can be destroyed by any amount of cold, fire, or radiant damage, exposure to direct sunlight, or any effect that can cure diseases. 
Okay. So a sunlight spell is a good thing to keep in your back pocket. Sunrod. Yes. <laughs> and that actually would be a kind of a, a really fun thing to do. You know, we're going to talk about different ways you can use these slimes in a thing. I know the movie Balto is based on it. What they basically had Diderot off of, they were trying to get vaccine to a sick little girl. And so they had this race. Maybe there's been an infestation of these green slimes because they can act as a spore and they can kind of linger for a while. So maybe, you know, this town or this village has suddenly infested invested with the green slimes and so you're doing a race to bring sunrods to this town so they can purge the area would be kind of a fun hook i mean i would just use fire personally but. well i mean you can do that but then you're gonna burn down the whole town that's not a terrible option but it is an option sunrods might be better <laughs> just get some clerics in there with sacred flame you know just purge everything with fire it's fine flame strike we're good <laughs> you get for more but it's the only way that's right all right the last fifth edition ooze that we need to talk about is the oblex We've mentioned it a couple of times. There are three grades of Oblex. There's Oblex Spawn, which is CR one quarter, the adult that's CR five, and the elder Oblex that is CR ten. Now, I have just recently discovered these. Again, yes, I'm a little late to the party. Fine. These can be a lot of fun. We could do a lot with these. They are the result of illithid experimentation on oozes. And as a result, they have psionics and they use psionics to devour the memories of their victims. And once they have eaten a creature's memories, they can create a perfect copy of that creature. Right. It has a faint sulfur smell, so it smells like rotten eggs. But other than that, it is a perfect depiction and it is proficient with all of the skills that that individuals proficient in it's proficient with all languages that that creature knows now with this reproduction it makes this is only with the adults or the elders the spawn can't quite do it again it has to eat so many memories but it is very much like a decoy or a simulacrum so again if it's like a magical creature or anything like that it doesn't have any of the magical abilities but it is for all intents and purposes a homunculus or a puppet kind of that it can act it's the uh body snatchers exactly the first thing i thought of particularly since it's going to carry the sulfur scent with whatever image it has is if this thing ate a succubus or a succubi using that to lure in people because obviously great at luring people in and then using that to eat more people would be a wonderful wonderful trap and so the mechanic here is that whenever a creature gets their memories eaten when they fail their wisdom saving throw they get a d4 penalty to all ability checks and attack rolls and each time after that, within a certain time period, I think it's within an hour, that they fail that wisdom save, that die increases by one size increment. Oh. So it's from a D4 to a D6 to a D8 to a D10 to a D12 to a D20. And when it reaches D20, they fall unconscious for an hour and the penalty ends. Okay. And by that point, they have basically sucked all of the memories out and then left a shell behind. I like it. That works. And again, for Illithids, that really works. And when I was seeing Illithids, that's when I became really surprised. That I didn't see Beholder listed there. But again, Illithids are kind of creepy too, and they have their own secret experiments. So this fits beautifully. And since it is also a psionic creature, if one is within range of an elder brain, the elder brain is able to peruse the oh. stolen memories that the Oblex has. And the Illithids use the Oblex's memories to hunt for victims. I like that. And this is also a great way to spy out your player's party. And so if your bad guy needs a plot reason to have information, this is a great way to do it. And the final note on the Oblex is that the inspiration for the Oblex actually came from 
a kid named Nolan Whale who was visiting Watsi for the day as part of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Nice. I mean, not nice for the condition, but that... Yeah, but that was his wish. He wanted to spend a day doing D&D stuff with the guys at Watsi, and so they brought him in, and this creature, the Oblex, was his brainchild. I am amazed by the inspiration and I am in awe of that. And so as nice as in that is a wonderful idea Nolan had. And so well done. I'm glad Watsi was able to take it and actually make it usable because this is a wonderful monster. I love this monster. This, like I said, could be a lot of fun. So well done to Nolan for that idea. That was fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So time for the lightning round because we're running a little long. Just a little bit. (laughs) Some of the other oozes from past editions, just a quick overview. Quick and dirty. The crystal ooze. Crystal ooze was basically a gray ooze that was translucent and hidden water. Okay. I mean, mechanically, it was identical in every other facet. It just looked different. Right. And we talked about those with the flotsam ooze. Then we have the olive slime. The olive slime is similar in function to the green slime, But a whole lot scarier because instead of dropping on you and dissolving you into a puddle of green goo, it instead of being acidic was anesthetic. Oh, and so you had a 50% chance of noticing it hit you whenever it fell. Oh, that's terrifying. Holy crap. And if you didn't notice and it hit you, it would latch on to you and attach to your central nervous system and it would make you it's basically a cordyceps. Okay. It turned you very paranoid and made you go to extreme lengths to hide the fact that it was there. Oh. And if it wasn't removed in 1d6 plus 6 days, it would take over and it would metamorphose the body into what became known as slime zombies. Somehow it turns them into plants. I think that was just a oh, we need some way to explain away this thing because there's a second edition creature. But the slime zombies were able to persist through photosynthesis and the olive slime was able to control them out to a range of 200 miles. That's a little dirty in a way to explain it. I mean, you could do it with like spores or pheromones or something like that, but this would make a great Halloween time campaign to run. Even a one shot, this would make a really good, like slime zombies. Who doesn't want to play slime zombies for Halloween? Yeah, this is great. Next one is the stun jelly. The stun jelly is basically a gelatinous cube that has been sliced. So instead of being a 10 by 10 by 10 cube, it's a 10 by 10 square that is two and a half to five feet thick. Okay. Sometimes you got Um, some narrow ways. You got halfling halls. And apparently they would grow in width on that two and a half to five foot thickness. Okay. And once they hit about five feet, they would actually rip themselves in half down the middle. Okay, so it's a very violent asexual division. And apparently you could hear it throughout the dungeon whenever it happened. I get that. I mean, you get that really thick jello and you kind of, you know, when you're slurping it out of the bowl, and I'm not going to make the mouth sound for that one, but you get it. (laughs) Anyone who has had to trudge through ankle deep or deeper mud, that sound that the boot makes whenever you're pulling it free, that's the sound. And calling back to the blob, like gelatinous cubes, they were immune to lightning, but they didn't have the cold weakness that gelatinous cubes had. And another thing that I forgot to mention is that gelatinous cubes used to paralyze on their pseudopod hits. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. 
They don't do that anymore, but they used Thankfully. to. Okay. Again, second edition was a very grim and harsh edition. You needed more than one character sheet. Probably. <laughs> I think that they still had a chance to paralyze on hit in third edition, too. I okay. don't think that that was removed until later. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, next up is the Slithering Tracker. As we mentioned, this is one from OD&D that continued through, is believed to have been the result of a wizard magically removing a person's bones. Right. Um, um, no, really, that's what it is. Uh. <laughs> now, again, the thing with the slithering tracker, too, is generally, you know, they talked about removing the bones or drawing all of the water and moisture out of a body. And this thing would be consumed by the thought of revenge. So it would start tracking whatever the point of its revenge would be. So whether this is voluntary or trying to track down the thing that did this to whomever. So again, this is just a vengeful ooze spirit, basically. And they were commonly found in the layers of larger creatures because these larger creatures would frequently kill something and have more food in their kill than they could eat. And so whenever the larger host creature got done, they would come in and slurp over whatever remains of their meal was there and would sustain themselves off of that. But basically what it did, it had a paralyzing touch because slimes do that. Apparently that if you fail the saving throw, you're paralyzed for 12 hours. Oh, the thing is it only needs an hour to kill you. Right. Because what it does is it slides up over top of you and engulfs you. And then it sucks all of the plasma out of your body. <laughs> this is specifically the, the plasma. plasma. I was going to say, yeah, this is the worst plasma donation process ever. <laughs> so the example that they gave in the second edition monster manual is that you have somebody who is wounded in the dungeon crawl and they can't make it back to town. So the party leaves them there to guard the treasure while they go back to town and get help. And then they come back and they find the treasure is all still there. But now your friend is this desiccated husk. Oh, he's all dry and wispy. <laughs> yeah, because the Slithering Tracker sucked all of his juice. And then they blame okay. it on vampires. Okay, two more. First one is my personal favorite, which is the Bone Ooze. The Bone Ooze is a gargantuan-sized ooze full of broken bits of bones. They're typically found in the depths of the earth. I don't know why, but they are. And to quote the... Monster Manual 2 from 3rd edition, a bone ooze normally maintains a roughly spherical shape measuring more than 30 feet in diameter and weighing more than 40,000 pounds. Oh, that's impressive. Though it can alter its shape to flow through a space as small as 5 feet by 5 feet. That's okay. I don't know if I mentioned this. It is a CR-21. Oh, oh my. Its pseudopods had ability drain. So for one hour... If you failed your fort save, you would take 1d6 strength, 1d6 dex, and 1d6 con damage. Yes, all of them. Oh my. The wounds that it would inflict with its pseudopods or by engulfing you would deal a cumulative five points of bleed. Oh. So at the start of your turn, you would take five points. And then if you got hit again, at the start of your next turn, you took ten points. And that persisted until healed. And as I mentioned, it would engulf creatures because it's a gargantuan ooze. So it so doesn't yeah, take much to slide over top of you and engulf you. And then once you were inside of it, it would target you with a save or die fort save. Oh. And on a failure, it would literally rip all of the bones out of your body. 
Impressive. And then 1d3 rounds later, it would drop your fleshy remains <laughs> on the floor beside it, along with any treasure that you happen to be carrying. It is done with you. <laughs> yep. It got what it was after, and it discarded the rest. So yeah, that's the bow news. I like that's it. my favorite. But this one is probably a very, very close second. And I think this one has become your favorite. Yeah, this one's definitely, of the oozes, this one's definitely top uh, This on one that. is also from the third edition Monster Manual 2. It is the Teratomorph, which is a CR-16 gargantuan ooze. This one is found typically deep in the ocean, and it feeds by inflicting entropy onto other creatures. This is a chaos monster. Yes. It can warp reality. It forces mutations into the creatures it touches, and it can even open rents into the fabric of reality, sucking creatures into random planes with plane shift. Yeah, this is when you piss off the DM and he's like, fine, <laughs> screw you guys. Here's the Teratomorph. Done. And it is able to detect lawful creatures within 20 feet of it because it is a creature of chaos. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I love this thing. It is immune to lightning and acid. And there's a 20% chance that any attack made against it just plain misses as that part of their body ceases to exist in that moment. I love it. It just knows. I want to drop like three of these into a Paladin Enclave. Yeah, that's basically all of the tricks that it has. But I mean, those are some good tricks. This is a creature that has like three random tables in its stat block. I love it. Because there's a whole list of effects that happen whenever it hits something with its pseudopods. And there's a whole list of the things that happen whenever it's able to warp reality. So I think they're both D20 tables. So yeah, it's pretty nasty. Yeah, I kind of, yeah, that's definitely my favorite. So that's our overview of oozes. So let's talk a little bit before we wrap up about how we might use an ooze. In a game. Okay. So again, we've suggested a couple uses already. Again, these are a good way to a medium low level party campaign. These are definitely a good plot hook, especially early on. These are a great way to manage resource management. This is a good way to teach the party that running away is sometimes a perfectly acceptable option. Yes. And all of the oozes in the monster manual are pretty good straight out of the book for a tier one party. Black pudding is probably a little bit much. Yeah, black puddings will probably start going levels, you know, six to ten. Nah, I wouldn't. You don't need to be that high. I don't know. As a CR4. Where you start splitting, though, and you start splitting. If the black pudding is not the first ooze that they have encountered. If they have encountered ochre jellies before the black pudding, they will know that that is an option. Yeah. It will know that it is possible for this thing to split. This is a good way to see if your party has learned. (laughs) It is because as I said, the black pudding is basically a combination of the gray ooze and the ochre jelly. Correct. It is those two monsters slapped together and given more hit points. Right. And so it is something that you can introduce at the tail end of tier one into the start of tier two. So in that level four to six range. I could see that. I wouldn't throw it at anything much lower than that. Because they will eat your party. I faced one of these once with a party of third level characters, but it was two wizards and a paladin. Okay. So we basically magicked it to death in one round before it got a chance to move. Very nice. Because the paladin also crit on their smite. Um, Oh, yeah, that always helps. (laughs) 
<laughs> that really helped. That level three paladin getting a, I think it was like a 41 damage smite. Oh my. Because they crit on it. Yeah, it was impressive. But that's the sort of thing. They're great for ambushes they're great for they're great for hazards within a dungeon yes very much so with the exception of the oblex i wouldn't use any of them as sort of an end boss for anything because they don't have any motivation they are mindless creatures they don't have anything that will really make sense to use as a capstone for a dungeon. The Oblex, on the other hand, for an adult or an elder Oblex, I could see them being like the boss at the end of the chapter, but not the boss at the end of the story. Right, I could see that. So for a lot of these, even for an Oblex or just your regular oozes, I would have like, as you're going through your dungeon, you're going to have your first layer of monsters are probably going to be something like zombies or skeletons. And these are where your melee characters are really going to shine. They're going to come in, they're going to be smashing stuff up. You know, they're just going to be stomping on things, breaking bodies, that kind of thing. And they're going to have a lot of fun. And your casters can kind of be back there doing stuff too. Your melee characters might blow some of their abilities or their skills or resources. And then your second layer would be a good time to start throwing some oozes in either like i said via traps either via pitfalls or as room monsters and this will give your casters more of a chance to shine because again your melee characters aren't going to do near as much damage to these things as your casters will so this will give your ranged characters a bit though your arrows aren't going to do a whole lot but again maybe if you have like some flame bolts or some ice bolts or you know again various spells these characters can kind of step up to the forefront and have their moment to kind of shine and then you might do a third layer before you get to your big bad guy for the dungeon right and something like the gray ooze is great for after they've gotten a little bit into the dungeon but before they get really deep into the dungeon because then the melee characters who hit this thing yeah they killed it but now they have a minus three penalty on their great sword right And that was another thing we talked about, too, is if you have these in a dungeon, have your party be able to find other equipment. Don't be afraid to break down your player's equipment, especially if it's non-magical. It can be replaced. It should be replaced. Even your everyday stuff's going to break down over time. It makes sense that the equipment that you're wearing to protect your very life as you're going through a dungeon is going to suffer damage and wear and tear. It's a dungeon. You're not supposed to, like, pally bubble your way through this. So yeah, have your gear break down. And it's supposed to take the damage because it's taking the damage so you don't. Exactly. So don't be afraid of making your paladin throw away that plate armor he has. And maybe there's other plate armor. Maybe they have to shift down to something like chainmail. Maybe they have to use an armor they're not necessarily proficient in. So their saves are a little more difficult. These are different things you can do to add to the game. So it's not just the same game and the same roles every time. I wouldn't necessarily do that if they're already in full plate, mainly because full plate is like 1500 gold a set. Fair enough. Yeah. But, but if they're, if they're starting off and they have chain mail, chain mail, which or is scale like mail or, yeah. 50 gold a set. Yeah. Okay. That absolutely, that you, you bring a fair point with that. I don't want to unfairly hinder the party after they spent a whole bunch of money to get this really nice armor. Right. No, that is fair. Now that said, I would totally at least hit it once yeah, and, you know, get a minus one or a minus two penalty on it. I wouldn't go so far as to actually fully dissolve it unless the character 
actually died. Right. And then the ooze just ate it. And even with that minus one or minus two, maybe take your character and maybe make them have to pay a blacksmith to repair it. Again, this is a very common... Yeah, of course you have to repair your armor. Jeez. Or... If you happen to have somebody in the party that has proficiency with Smith's tools or Tinker tools, they can fix that for you. On a long rest, yeah, and that would make sense. And that's a great use of the party's downtime. Yeah, that lets you use your tool proficiencies in a meaningful way in the game. Right, because those are often overlooked. Too. Yeah, using that huge chunk of real estate on your character sheet that almost never gets touched. Exactly. But like I said, with the Oblex, like in an Elder Oblex could make a very interesting chapter boss. Right. One of the ideas that I saw in the comments of a video on Oblex is one of them like living in the well of a small village. Okay. And it has already consumed all of the villagers. I could see that. And all of the villagers that are out and about in the town are actually created by the Oblex. I was going to bring that. So the adult Oblex can create a single illusion or imitation. I'll use the term imitation. It can make 1d4 plus 1. 1d4 plus 1? Okay. And then what is the Elder? Um, You would have to ask that, wouldn't you? I would, because I knew there was a difference. Because I was reading that the adult could do 1 and the Elder could do like 12 or 13. Um, 2d6 plus 1. So yeah, that'd be 13. The Elder can do 2d6 plus 1 and the adult can do 1d4 plus 1. Okay. So yeah, you could have... You know, most of the people you're going to meet in this village or even like a group of people that are running for something and they need you to go. They've been beset by orcs and they beg you to save their cart or grandma or whatever it is. So you've got this group of villagers or travelers who need your help. And so, yeah, you're going to run off to go save whatever. And it's all a trap. So, yeah, that is a great way to play that. Yeah. And you could do this. I'm getting a picture now. It's this little town i mean it might be in a swamp or something okay and so there might be one that's in the tavern and one that's in the town hall quote unquote okay you know there might be more than one oblex there might be an elder and two adults i could see that in this town and the elder is in the tavern and is all of the people in the tavern and one of the adults is in the town hall and is the mayor and the mayor's secretary and one or two other people but Say, if it is in a swamp, it can be one of these towns where you're already on edge thinking something's not right because everything has like three inches of murky standing water. Oh, yeah. Everywhere. Okay. Because all of these images, all of these copies that it has have to be tethered to the main mass. Right. Um, And so by having even on the inside of the buildings on the ground floor they've all got like three inches of nasty fetid murky water standing on the floor because that hides the tentacles and this would explain the sulfur smell around everything too yes okay so i'm gonna go ahead and round this out are you ready okay you have a coven of hags one hag has two elders a second hag it maybe has an elder and adult or two more elders and the third hag has just adults maybe one or two adults so there you have four to five of your oblix running around being guided or directed by this coven of hags that are running everything else because again we've already set this in a swamp and so again these oblix with the psychics are going to be able to relate to the hags they might have some of the artifacts that the hags can give like the hag eye or things like that and so again these two would play back and forth and they would fit really really well together i think yeah i could see that might be better with something like specifically night hags 
Yes. Because they are dealing in nightmares. Yes. So. And so they would definitely feed off of and use that psionic energy. Yeah. Or you could just have some elephants kicking around because, again, that would make sense for them, too. Oh, yeah. What it would be is it would be a way to lure people into the town for the illithids to collect and harvest for their brains. Yes. Oh, you can even make it so where things seem a little off, but everyone's excited. Maybe there's like some sort of festival getting ready to kick off. Like, yeah, everyone needs help. That's easy to do. But maybe people are coming here because there's like a celebration of some sort. And so they're trying to like tourist trap people in here as well. Okay. I was about to say, are you really going to go and wicker man this? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the bees. <laughs> no, we're talking about the proper. Oh, Okay original wicker man oh we're not, not we're not johnny caging that or uh, nicholas caging no, this oh. no <laughs> we're not johnny caging this either <laughs> i'm not going to even entertain that travesty <laughs> but yeah again these lead up another scenario with oozes that i saw would be a good way to kind of start a party in was that someone had the great idea for a city to use oozes as their quote waste disposal system either they brought the oozes in as a good idea to kind of like parse down the landfill or maybe they've created a landfill and therefore drawn oozes to it just with all the organic waste and refuse you know old chicken bones and scraps of food dead bodies whatever and so now there's oozes here either brought in or in on their own and the oozes are in a perfect environment there's plenty of food why not so they're growing and multiplying and now they are starting to spread into a town and so now you have to figure out how to drive them out and back and I mean, there is a reason why you find gelatinous cubes in sewers. Yes. Because they're in there consuming all of the refuse. Yeah, they're doing their job. <laughs> they're doing their job. The problem is, as they do their job and as they eat, they grow and eventually they split. Yep. It's kind of like and throwing the rats down the uh, New York sewers or the lore of the baby crocodiles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that is a good place to wrap up. Yeah, think, no, this was a lot of fun. did a good job. Yeah. Oozes, use them. Oozes, use them. Absolutely. <laughs> I love the concept of the bone ooze. I don't know how in the world you actually create a bone ooze. or A dragon graveyard. Possibly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that would be about the only thing. Or an old battlefield with that many bones. Right, but they're subterranean. That's the thing that's getting me. Yeah. Well, I mean, they could, they could theoretically bubble up or if there was like a dungeon or a cave that ran beneath such, maybe there was like an old something beneath a dragon graveyard. Maybe there was like an old dragon war at some point. And so now all these dragons had, had killed each other trying to control this artifact or this area where this artifact was rumored to be. And there's a subterranean temple. Or they spawned in a section of the Underdark where the Dwergar and the Drow have been fighting for a long time. Yeah, so. exactly. You could do it that way. Yeah. And then you could build up a bunch of lore and horror stories and mythos and cryptids around this. And it's just this giant horrible bone news that's like, okay, more death. Yay me. And then every <laughs> so often there'll be a scouting party out and they'll just find an empty, floppy, ragged flesh suit, basically. Yeah. Oh, maybe there's old villages that this thing has gone through and just the village is just completely wiped out. And so that's maybe is what's further fueling this war is that, you know, whatever sediments are on the outskirts are wiped out. And obviously it's for the droughts, the Dwargar for the Dwargar, it's obviously the drought, but someone's going in and just wiping out men, women, children, everything, and just leaving the bodies behind. 
And then we got there and all we see is this travesty of what was once. And they're not strangely not looting or destroying anything. They're just killing everyone wantonly. And so this is breeding more and more hate between the two factions. Yeah. Yeah. That'll work. Okay. Ah, uh, we've brainstormed a terrible, terrible thing. <laughs> we have. And now I want to run out of the abyss for the Pudding King. Yes. And we will culminate with a bonus. I like it. All right. I think that does it for today. So thank you everyone for listening. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under common taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT homebrew. I have recently put up a Google form where you can submit questions for us to answer during our episode 100 live stream, which is going to be on Friday, August 19th. Woohoo. Still working on at the time of recording, a guest list, but we're going to try and invite several of our friends from the TTRPG community, mostly podcasters, but also possibly some content creators, depending on who is available. And we're just going to sit around and answer questions and shoot the breeze and just have a grand old time. Alrighty. You can find us on Twitter, as I mentioned, at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, and Twitch. Search Under Common Taste. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash taste. If you would like to help support the show financially, please consider becoming a patron. And finally, we are on Discord, and you can find a link to our Discord in the show notes, and we would love for you to come and chat with us. Absolutely. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, we are so happy you found us and making it through a full podcast with us. You can find our other podcasts wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, just kind of everywhere. As always, please subscribe so you can get our latest episodes. And also give us a rating and review. This lets us know more what you want to hear of and also increases our visibility so we can bring more content to you. Thank you once more for joining us today. Stay safe and we'll see you next week in episode 99 where we finally get to the Underdark. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.